Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome What the Finances to another episode of the What the Finance podcast, where we talk to experts to help gain a greater understanding about what has happened in the world of finance, investing and markets. On today's podcast, I'm happy to welcome Weston Nakamura, who's a former Goldman Sachs and Jeffries trader in Tokyo and currently manager of the Real Vision Exchange. So Weston, thanks for joining the podcast today. Thanks, uh, Anthony, for having me. Um, and just to update, so my title is Global Markets Editor uh, at Real Vision. So, oh, Okay, so have you on the, uh, the promotion then? Um, sure. Let's call it that. <laughs> it's, a, it's a, it's a, it's a kind of a expanded role. Okay. Awesome. Good stuff. So yeah, I was wondering if you maybe want to give us a little bit of a uh, overview of your backgrounds and maybe how you've got into the, this stage, because from what you were telling me before, it's sort of not the uh, conventional route. Yeah. So thanks. Thanks for, um, again, having me here and, uh, th- thanks for asking that because this is kind of, um, this is a rare opportunity for me to like talk about how I came into finance and how I actually came to real vision or to, to where I am currently. Um, it's not a very, it's far from a typical sort of, uh, avenue. And, um, when it's important for two reasons, one is because people seem to find, I guess, like inspiration from it, which is good if that's the case, um, or, or not. But, uh, the other more important reason is that it provides background context as to all the views that I put out there all the time, like, uh, you know, you so that you know where I'm kind of coming from, where my values are, if you will, and, and all that um, is, is not what you would think. Like, uh, you know, if you just heard the intro, you would think like, oh, I'm a Goldman guy or something like that. That, that yeah, that might be true from like a, a sliver of my past, but uh, it's not uh, the full picture at all. And that by itself is not really good context either. So I'm in Tokyo, as you mentioned, I've been here for uh, a few years, but I'm, you know, U.S. born and raised, um, as you can tell by my accent. <laughs> and so I just want to first, first and foremost say that I am not a typical finance person, institutional finance person by any means, as in uh, I have a horrendous a- academic record, okay, right off the bat. So I'm, let's call it a D student. I mean, I'm, I've been in the bottom zero to 10 percentile of my class in terms of like academic you know, grades and all that for my entire life from high school, college, all that kind of stuff. Right. Um, you know, I basically graduated with a barely passing, uh, GPA, uh, grade point average from my university, which was a degree in nothing related to finance. And I graduate, uh, basically right in between when Lehman brothers and Bear Stearns or when Bear Stearns and Lehman brothers fails. So it basically doesn't matter if I tried really hard all my life um, at school or not, because everybody in my entire grade and grade below me and all that. Um, and the preceding one got completely screwed because we graduate into this, th- this time where we're supposed to be getting our entry level foot in the door. We did got totally skipped over because when the econo- economy recovered, you know, they just went to those new new grads. And so um, our specific kind of sub cohort within millennials really got screwed for that. But anyway, so I graduate, 
I always paid attention to kind of current events and, and, and sort of like, you know, news and all that. And, and I knew nothing about what, I never heard of Bear Stearns or anything like that. When Lehman went down um, and the entire world ended, it was a massive, like kind of wake up call, like slap in the face to me. Um, and it was like, a, it was like a wake up call, but like in, in, in two particular sort of uh, instances. Well, number one is that, I realized that I actually didn't know anything about anything that actually mattered in society, as in like financial markets. And so I better sit up and pay attention, um, or rather do a deep dive in, right? Politics, this and that, that doesn't matter, apparently. Um, and so I was totally, you know, misguided my entire life. And then wave call number two is that I realized that finance is the most powerful institution in the world, okay, even more so than governments, right? Financial institutions, 2008, they blew up the world. And then governments, they moved heaven and earth to make sure that the, those th very actors were the ones, the only ones who will remain employed as tens of millions of jobs, you know, that have absolutely nothing to do with finance, with subprime mortgages, with green, red blinking tickers were destroyed. Um, and so the stark reality was at the time was that if I want a job, if I want job security in this world, I need to be at a too big to fail institution, right? Because it doesn't matter what we've, you know, if you're a mechanic or an engineer or a lawyer or a bartender or whatever, if the people who move digital pieces of paper around the world, if they fuck up, you will be directly impacted to the downside, to the downside only, right? Because remember, privatized gains, socialized losses, right? So need to get into to a too big to fail bank, easier said than done, given the climate, the, the environment, and given my zero track record. Um, then, so fast forward to 2013, Abenomics is rolled out in Japan. And then, so I see this as like, you know, all right, so if, if there's ever gonna be a one long shot chance to get my foot in the door into institutional finance, then this might be it. Uh, tiny as a chance it may be, because, you know, I, I figure there's gonna be this huge, like, uh, you know, waves of, of foreign capital that are gonna rush into Japan. and. So even though I, I neither spoke Japanese at that point, nor understood anything about finance and markets, like it, if I could be in sales and position myself to like serve as an English speaking, uh, you know, liaison to investors, foreign investors who want um, exposure to some financial product in Japan, whatever it is, then I could be sort of the, the, the person on the ground, boots on the ground to assist doing that. So what I did was, in the span of a few weeks, I just basically uprooted my entire life in New York. I said goodbye to my, you know, my friends, my family, my everything. Um, I got on a one-way flight uh, from New York to Tokyo with just one suitcase. I had no job, no job offer. I had no contacts. I had no credentials. I had no home. I had no place to live, no ability to speak the language. Like I had nothing, you know. I basically was kind of hopping around night to night from, like, one capsule hotel to another, I was living off of like 7-Eleven dinners, but I was basically trying to, you know, in the process kick down the door of every financial institution um, that had any sort of like, uh, you know, presence in Tokyo, um, since basically everyone. Uh, most obviously did not even respond to me. Goldman did. And they were basically like, uh, well, first of all, they were like, this is, you know, this is the most insane like thing I've ever seen this this guy, right? So I went in for an interview. Um, they kind of grilled me on markets and, and stuff like that. And then at the end, they were like, they said, first of all, Wesson, you're by far the strangest candidate we've ever interviewed. And I was like, yeah, damn right. I am. 
But they said, look, all right, look, you're a smart guy. You kind of are a natural salesperson over there. But look, we do have like this whole army of like UPenn and Harvard Business School and Oxford grads out there, right? Why should we give you the job? We we offer two percent uh to like uh, of of applicants to the jobs, right? And I said, this is that's precisely why you're gonna give me the job, right? It's because I do not have a Harvard or Oxford University or Tokyo University degree, right? So if you're in your twenties with a Harvard MBA and new grad, something like that, you're thinking to yourself, I can do anything I want, and it's true, you can, right? The mentality is like, so let me try out Goldman. If I don't like it, I could always move to Morgan Stanley or a hedge fund or to McKinsey or to whatever. And all that's true. But if you give me the role, I have no put option. I have no insurance policy. I have no MBA or anything like that. So it means that my paths are either succeed or be homeless. So therefore, like, you know, they don't, those other people, they don't know what it's like to be truly, literally hungry, um, to be motivated, to be driven at that level. And, and ironically, they're not helped by their MBAs. Uh, they're being hindered by them. So what I offer you is my horrendous track record, my, my non-existing and horrendous, like, you know, grade point average and, and all of that, and which equates to sort of motivation. So that's how I got my foot in the door of, this is 20, basically 21 interviews later, I found myself at the listed derivatives trading desk, the futures options trading desk at Goldman Tokyo. So they literally hired like a, basically a homeless person off the streets. And so that's kind of the context of, of how I got in. And so I just want people to know that because when they think of me as some like Goldman person or something like that, yeah, I guess that's that might be the case. But that's certainly not, I'm typically, I'm far from a typical Goldman person, let alone any sort of institutional finance person at all. And so uh, once again, I, the reason I share that is because A, some people find that to be inspiring. Um, and I'm glad that if it is, because what it says is like, there are society's rules of the road. Like you must do X, Y, Z to get into this sort of firm or the, no, you don't. Okay. I'm living proof of that. Um, and the second thing is that because I have this very weird way into finance, I think that's why I have a very kind of, um, non-institutionalized view of how I approach markets and all that and kind of differentiated ways of thinking. And so that's to my benefit also. Um, it's not just one track mind, sort of uh, academically uh, rooted, going through the internship system, then the whole like, you know, process of getting, moving up the, the, the ladder and the ranks of within an investment bank and all that. None of that applies to me. So I'm kind of uh, separated from that institutionalization. So. Um, so yeah, so that, thanks for letting me share that part. Yeah, no, it's a fascinating story. And I guess <laughs> what would have happened if you didn't get the Goldman job, just go somewhere else. <laughs> well, my, my, my roles, look, when I, when I did this, I was like, my friends would say like, you know, that like you're, the, the, you're not going to get like into go, they'll just walk in. Right. They, they, they weren't saying like, um, you know, it's, it's impossible, but I was like, look, I'm, I'm very much aware of what this is. So what I said was, okay, I will most likely be working at McDonald's. Um, and I'm going to give myself like minimum, like a year, at least a year, year and a half of, of whatever of just relentlessly just hammering the door of anyone and everyone, um, again and again and again. And, and I'm not just going to kind of you know, say like, okay, well, that's, that's everything. Like, like I purposely did it a one-way ticket. So it's like kind of um, un undoable. 
and put myself into a position of because like uh, the way i figured was i'm not gonna get into goldman or whatever but like let's say like i do have or let, let's say i don't get into institutional finance as per the probabilities and the worst case scenario is that i uprooted myself out of my sort of comfort zone and i threw myself across the world into somewhere else and i kind of rebuilt myself from this from scratch and i learned like how to survive from starting from nothing if that is like the takeaway if that's like the lesson that i learned that is a, a lifelong lesson that is far worth it still so um where it would go from there i don't know because i could say like okay well that didn't work out but uprooting my life isn't so daunting after all what's london like what's india like what's whatever like and then see where it goes from there but at least get out of my bubble of new york and get out of my comfort zone and kick off some sort of uh chain reaction of whatever my life may be um so i didn't really know what would come i was just gonna go with the flow and i still am for that matter yeah, it's a great, great way to live. So, you, you know, you mentioned there before that you sort of have like a different way of looking, I guess, at, at markets in general. So how would you de define that, you know, unique method? Um, I would define it as, first of all, different as, is, is a relative concept, right? So I would define it as what I'm not doing. So um, like if you're analyzing stocks or something like that like i wouldn't look at a dcf model i, I would be so i know what they are i know i, I, I i'm i familiarize with myself or like deep dive in but i don't adopt them it's like just because you learn something doesn't mean that you have to apply it i learn it because other people are learning it or know it and applying it and therefore you know i care because i care type of thing right like p people look at certain indicators of this and that like um uh, a specific jobs number or whatever I don't care about an earnings call or a jobs number unless the market participants who move, who have the capital to move green and red blinking tickers care. Then I care. So I care about what other people care about. Um, the way that I approach things is just very, just kind of out of the box is that I'm very so also skeptical of um, when everybody is kind of in unison saying, this must happen or this has to happen you know the kind of diff uh, pay, attention to, pay attention to language and like you know the musts or they can never happens and all that kind of stuff that's when i kind of perk up and look for like an information orb um and then i just approach everything as i guess the difference is that the reason i would outperform especially like the institutional side is that I start off every single day with the mentality of, I don't know anything. Nobody does, right? Nobody knows how the market's going to trade at the end of the day. Even if you're insider trading, you might be trading the wrong direction still. Um, but uh, I don't know anything is how I start my day. However, let's find out. Let's figure out what's going to happen. People who think that they know um, and say things like, uh, the market will come to me, the market doesn't care about your spreadsheet model. It's going to do what it's going to do. And those are the people who see themselves holding positions down 50%, 60%, 70% because the market will come to me, like the MBA person, whatever. Um, those people have to unlearn everything that they know and start, start off at, I don't know what's going to happen. They have to do all that just to get to where my starting point is. So my edge is that... Acknowledge you don't know anything, but also acknowledge that nobody else does either, and then try to figure it out.
and try to exploit the people that think that they know what's going to happen and are like so definitely sure you know alpha to me is exploiting like a an understanding and kind of almost a, an ego orb if you will yeah it's re that's really interesting i think that's um renaissance technology is i think that's what they you've probably heard of the hedge fund they actually take advantage a lot of the time of these retail traders and these people who have you know follow, follow these certain trends and, and but you're actually focusing on what are the big institutions doing that who can move the markets and then from there you well, yeah would you say that no yeah no no it's not it's not um just institutions it's people it's I look for what moves green and red blinking tickers in what direction at what sort of velocity. Um, and the, the source of the capital itself, it could be institutional, but it could also be retail. So I've, I've had this long held belief. The reason I'm, I'm, uh, I'm no longer in institutional finance. I left institutional finance and I'm at real vision, which is more of obviously a individual investor facing platform is because Long before GME and all that, I had this broader view of being short institutional and long the individual, collective individual investors. And I actually have um, on the Real Vision Exchange, I have a video clip from October 2020, October, November of 2020, saying that the, 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 the retail or the individual you know, investor community can act as one group together they can act as a giant asset manager pooled together with their capital that they, you know, they discuss things on trading forums. They have systems like copy trading and all that kind of stuff. And they could act as a giant asset manager um, who has market moving abilities. And then a few months later, we have GME. And this is like exactly what I was basically talking about. So I look for whatever the flows of capital are, whether it is on the institutional side, whether there's a market maker on a trading desk that is, you know, trying to, uh, hedge their delta exposure um, to you know to, to options markets or uh, whether it is quarterly rebalance of some index or whether it's the GPIF the largest pension fund in the world the Japan Japanese pension fund um, and their treasury buying and selling activity and or Japanese institutions in general that are and buying and selling of, of treasuries and so whatever is like the source of the capital, I, I don't really look at the asset. I look at, I kind of turn around, I look at the, the capital behind it and I study the behavior of that is how I kind of approach things. Yeah. So you study the capital and I guess then you understand what are their limitations or what are their, what are their motives? What are goals? What are their, yeah, yeah. What are their goals? What are they trying to do? What are they forced to do? How much more do they have? What, what? risk what what how are they cross correlated what other exposure do they have to what um and just the behavior of the capital itself right because markets by and large move on flows of capital not on fundamentals not on what even central banks you know are trying to uh to do just, let's just look at the repo market in uh september of 2019 right like you can set the fed funds rate as, as target as whatever you want to but it doesn't always work out that way um, capital is going to do what it's going to do. And you have to study that, not look at the asset itself um, and, and study the behavior of that. If there's going to be a short squeeze, if there's going to be a whatever, um, if the UK guild market is about to blow up, um, what's that going to mean for, you know, the, the British pound and therefore everything else as well that's that's kind of interlocked with that. Uh, so that's that's how I kind of approach things. Uh, what, I, what I generally say is that 
everybody more or less in public markets, we all get the same markets. We all get the same, you know, SPX. We all get the same uh, Euro, USD, cross, whatever it is, and and therefore the same markets, right? So why is it that some people make billions and others lose everything and then some uh, in the same markets? Well, it's not the markets themselves. It's how people are behaving differently within those markets, right? So you're not really ever trading markets. You're trading against or with yourself um, in relation, it, relative to others as well. So that's how I, how I kind of how my approach is. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, it's a fascinating, fascinating way to look at it. So can you maybe give an example of, uh, you know, you, you mentioned a few there to do with pension funds, I guess, GME as well, an example of a time where you, you've seen this and you've made a trade based on it? I basically only make trades based on it. So like, I, uh, I have many, many, many. Okay, here's, here's one. Um, so um, I'll give you, I'll give you one from if we're going to talk about the bank of Japan and dollar yen and all that kind of thing and the ministry of finance. Um, so I had a view going into September BOJ, um, monetary policy meeting. This is the day, by the way, that the ministry of finance first blasted dollar yen down, uh, with their, you know, intervention. But before that, what you had was us 10 year, us treasury yields and, uh, dollar yen moved, tick for tick in tandem together. And then there was like a lot of jawboning happening from the Ministry of Finance, but then the Bank of Japan kind of stepped in and did jawboning uh, of FX, which is a very kind of rare thing to do because it's not in their remit to, to look at FX. But after that, that yield spread kind of just widened out and therefore the 10 year US Treasury yield and dollar yen kind of split off. And so dollar yen should have been, you know, 146 plus at that time. So going into that Bank of Japan meeting, I was thinking, okay, well, here's Governor Kuroda. He's going to be asked about comments of, on the FX, on the exchange rate and all that. He's not going to say anything about that because it's not in his remit. He's going to say this is not in our remit. And so therefore, he's not going to say anything that's yen supportive. So short the living daylights out of the yen is what I tweeted at that time. Then yen actually did fall precipitously um, over that time. And I traded with futures directionally. And I was basically able to kind of exploit the people who thought that he would be kind of yen supportive, or at least close up that gap that had existed. Uh, the second lesson there is that once that catalyst was realized towards the end, about the last back, maybe like 10 minutes or so of his, of his press conference, I closed my position and I had a nice profit. Um, 20 minutes after that, the Ministry of Finance came in and they blasted dollar yen down or they short squeezed the hell out of yen um, futures. And I would have gotten destroyed if I didn't close my position, even though I was right up until then. I would have lost way more than I had made that uh, that day. And so the, the lesson there is, once again, you never know what's going to happen. So once you get a catalyst realized, like to take your position off, I guess to answer that, that second part was not really answering your, you know, your original question, but uh, yeah.
like that. Or another example would be like the, so the very easy ones, like the Ukraine-Russia war. So when that first happened, I don't know if you remember, but days before that happened, President Joe Biden was making very definitive statements saying Russia is about to invade Ukraine. He repeated this, his cabinet repeated this, and Lincoln repeated this, um, and markets didn't move. And then, like three days later, Russia invades Ukraine. And markets like took a huge leg down, a risk off leg. And I positioned, I had my reasons for, I had a thesis for like, Russia's gonna make some sort of market moving, like risk off event immediately following the Beijing Olympics. I had that view for a while, like I was talking about on Real Vision, it's all out there. But when the President of the United States tells me that there's going to be a major risk-off event imminently happening, I'm going to position for that. But I also saw that because markets didn't move, I recognize that there's there are so many people, and by markets I mean like kind of single stock equities in in U.S. So like I went like long calls on like Lockheed Martin stuff like that. I recognize that there's so many like people like within the adult population of in the United States at least. Um, on both sides of the aisle who think that Joe Biden is like a brain dead person who's propped up on like a stick, right? And so anything that he says must be right or wrong or whatever. And I recognize that there was like this sort of weird political bias or something, um, but there was this arb to take advantage of that people are not taking this guy seriously because when he says there's going to be a risk off move coming and the markets don't move, there's, there shows that shows that there's a potential opportunity. And so that's kind of how I you know, took advantage of that capital behavior. Yeah, so uh, as you said before, it's not about the actual news and what's happening. It's about how people react. And if you don't see that reaction, that's when you see the opportunities to potentially take a position. People, how people react, how capital reacts, because it's not always yeah. people. It could be systematic too. So, yeah. Yeah, exactly. No, it's really interesting. And yeah, you mentioned the uh, BOJ there. And I, I think you're quite well known for your videos about the BOJ, specifically on Real Vision, um, <laughs> for, for, for good or for worse. But uh, yeah, I was wondering if you maybe could give an explanation maybe about the current policies that the Bank of Japan are implementing and you know maybe why they're not what everyone else is doing. Sure. So when you say I'm known for it, I don't know if I'm known because I'm a clown or if I'm known for my the information itself. Um, I don't know what I'd be more proud of um, because I take pride in being a professional clown. Um, but look, again, this is the reason I said that that whole background at first is because look, I'm not a bank expert. I get, just before this call, like I had institutional, you know, uh, large prominent sort of people within institutional finance asking me my view about BOJ and the yen and the JGB markets. And it's called, so it's insane to me that they're asking a D student this. Um, but again, I was able to kind of at the beginning of this year look be early and say the Bank of Japan is not a sleepy central bank that you must pay attention to. It will make headlines and waves. It's the most consequential of the major central banks this year because of the fact that people are not paying attention, let alone the the fact that they are going to be on this easing path while everybody else is hiking rates. Um, and again, the 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 it's not an outside view. It's just because I'm starting off from a clean slate and that's how I analyze things. Um, and I, as, I, as I said to you too, BOJ is important and I have like kind of knowledge about it, but it has nothing to do with me being in Japan. It's totally coincidental. I'm only looking for what moves green and red blinking tickers. That is to me was something that was going to be moving green and red blinking tickers. And it doesn't matter if I was um, in South Africa or trading out of Brazil or New York or wherever. Um, I would be looking at the Bank of Japan. 
just so happens that I'm here. It's totally coincidental. So I have no edge here um, because of geographic location. Just want people to know that. So with that said, um, so yeah, BOJ is currently in a um, a stance where they're almost at this moment they're kind of being proven to be correct for not having moved their policy uh, against everybody else who has been the entire world has been. Uh, removing accommodative policy, they've been, you know, uh, hiking rates. BOJ has been just really, really just, you know, holding the line uh, on their aggressive easing. Um, and all the while they're, they're doing this because they're saying the inflation that we're seeing in Japan is, first of all, it's like headline CPI is now at like just over 3% in Japan versus like the almost near double digits of other DM. So is it cost push uh, driven or not? And if Kuroda's correctly saying that this is mostly driven by, you know, uh, rising cost of energy imports and, and things like that. But in the, at the core level, you're not seeing like a massive demand, um, driven inflation for, for TVs and electronics and stuff like that. And so he's saying that, and you don't see wage inflation. So unless, unless you start seeing those things in a sustained manner, we have to keep doing this because we've been basically easing for eight years aggressively on monetary policy experimentation to a level where you have uh, the Bank of Japan's balance sheet at, what, 120% of GDP, far more aggressive than any other major central bank, um, owning half the JGB market. You're not going to just, like, pivot on that um, after nearly a decade of doing that on a, a single CPI print. Um, that is at the headline level. So it seems like uh, if inflation is topping, at least in the US, and if we're kind of entering a potential recession, and then you might see like, you know, inflationary uh, inflation, like the rate of change to in the US or X Japan start to level off and potentially come down, regardless of what the policy is, if the market expectation is that the FOMC or the, the ECB or whatever might like pause, then Kuroda was correct the whole time and saying like, yeah, it didn't apply to Japan. So it, it, it is sort of transitory in nature, but it's external. And it's not uh, something that's shifting fundamentally in Japan. And therefore, there doesn't warrant a change in policy. And so um, Kuroda, Kuroda might be proven correct. So I think that as it stands right now, the Bank of Japan is going to continue to just maintain as it is. The the uh, important point part is Kuroda is done in April of 2023. And so it's not that much time between now and then. There's only a few Bank of Japan meetings left. And his successor, whoever that may be, and it almost doesn't really matter who it is, but what's going to happen between you know now and then? The Kuroda, Bank of Japan Governor Kuroda, who's the longest serving central, major central banker right now, um, at, that's currently active, as well as the long central banker um, in BOJ history, or the longest tenure in history in BOJ history. When he his leaving in and of itself is massively significant, and there's going to be a ton of volatility and uncertainty and sort of headline-driven things that are going to happen uh, in between now and then. Um, so I can't really tell you what's going to happen, but I would think that uh, whoever the new person is, even if like the the economy globally and in, in Japan has an inflation top and maybe even a pullback such that you know yields DM yields everywhere start to pull back down JGB 10-year yields move back down toward like towards like zero where they were just a year ago um and there's no need for like daily fixed rate operations to keep buying JGBs at the 10-year 
uh, tenor to, you know, cap at 25 basis points and all that. Even if that happens, I think that the next person is going to have to do some sort of tweak, a, a tiny one or a major overhaul or whatever it is. What they cannot do is maintain Kuroda's policies word for word, because if they do that, then they're stuck with Kuroda's policies forever. And it's going to have a very horrendously volatile time to try to get out of that. So just for the sake of, hey, uh, new person, thank you, Kuroda, for achieving the 2% plus target of uh, getting Japan out of deflation and into inflation. Now we're handing off the baton. And then this next person needs to be sort of a wild card. Um, and like, you don't know what we're going to do. Just know that like Japan, the Bank of Japan will do whatever we please, whenever we please. Don't fuck with us. Don't you dare short the JGB market. Um, otherwise you will be made a, a, a widow um, or your spouse will be made a widow. Um, and I, and I think that they have to buy themselves flexibility, policy flexibility. Currently the language is that we are targeting around 0% for the 10 year JGB, um, band. If they want to hike rates, they'll say like, we're going to target around 25 basis points, which is where it currently is, but that would give them a little bit more flexibility. Um, but I would say that they would have to widen out the kind of the band to the upside and the downside, because that way, again, it gives them more flexibility, gives them a wider range to work with. Um, in the meantime, what to do with the yen, if US, if U.S. yields keep surging upwards, which they're not uh, currently at the moment, but if they do, and the yield spread between Japan and uh, the U.S. widens and dollar yen starts to go towards like 160 handle or whatever, um, then Ministry of Finance is going to keep stepping in to uh, blast USDJPY downwards. And so therefore, it's been my kind of view over the last, you know, since that almost horrendous accident I had in shorting JPY futures uh, in September. But the new Widowmaker trade might be to short the yen at the kind of USD JPY like highs because the Ministry of Finance could come in and just blast dollar yen down again and again. And again, this goes back to the reason it's a Widowmaker trade is the same reason as JGBs are shorting JGBs of Widowmaker trade. Because fundamentally, in the UPenn textbooks and the University of Chicago, you know, Booth School textbooks, it makes fundamental sense to short the JGB market, right? Like the Japan's most indebted country in the world, the, Japan, you are not going to get your principal paid back from from Japan if you you know on on their debt. Uh, there's no way to service it, let alone to pay you back on your principal. Population shrinking, um, it's getting more, the debt burden is increasing. Um, so it makes fundamental sense. However, Japan has a way of defying economic gravity. And so that's why it's the Widowmaker trade, because if you follow fundamentals and you short JGBs, you would have gotten carried out. I think that currently the uh, economic textbook says you can't support both the, the rates market as and the currency market at the same time. It's one or the other. It's one at the expense of the other. The Bank of Japan has been supporting the JGB market at the expense of the yen, hence the yen becoming the worst currency year to date getting destroyed. That's why that's happening. Those are the fundamentals of how it works. Yes. However, do not underestimate Japan's ability to defy economic gravity. And so they could very well uh, support the JGB market while supporting JPY um, at the same time for longer than we think. And so if you want to short the yen and mess with the Ministry of Finance at, towards new highs, like uh, USD JPY new highs, I think that that's 
a very, very risky thing. And again, throw away your textbook, look at reality. Bank of Japan and the Ministry of Finance in Japan is kind of very unique in their ability to defy gravity. Yeah, that's a that's a great explanation. So you mentioned April is when there's a potential that there will be a new uh, sort of chairman of the central bank in Japan. So you don't think there'll be a massive pivot? You think it'll more just be maybe a small potential change that they make? Um, I think that it, I think that there is no such thing as a small change. Um, in terms of the language might be small the market reaction um, that would come of that, there, like there, there isn't really a gray area between like, you know, huge like cross asset volatility explosion and, you know, nothing is like maintained um, because the, like I said, the there's not going to be a sweeping overhaul, but even if they widen the band on JGBs, just doing that in itself um, would be hugely consequential to markets um, because it would have direct implications on the U.S. Treasury market, which is a risk-free rate, and the U.S. Treasury market volatility at a time where there's a lot of illiquidity, and that volatility could therefore be exacerbated. Um, and you can get it can trigger a, it could be like kind of a trigger moment for a potential what happened in the U.K. gilt market to happen in the U.S. Treasury market. Um, with a slight tweak of a language of, of letters on like a, uh, ink and paper printed out of the BOJ saying, you know, have fixed rate operations um, for the Bank of Japan to target 10 year JGB yield at around 25 basis points instead of around zero. That shift in itself could send potentially be the trigger to send the US Treasury market in a massive you know, tailspin in which the Fed will have to do what the what the Bank of England did and suddenly reverse and start buying directly the long end of the U.S. Treasury curve uh, in order to keep, you know, 30-year U.S. Treasury yields from jumping 100 basis points in a week or something. Yeah, it's crazy to think. And that would be the capital from, I guess, the Japanese pension funds going, like, flowing back into Japan, would you say? Or where, where would that come from, do you think? So that would happen as a result of that. That that's sort of a a hybrid between the fundamentals versus like the capital flow. I like you know. So I like I like your uh, your your take on that. Yeah, that's how it would happen. But it would actually be more kind of mechanical and technical, you know, because it's if it's illiquidity, it's the when when quasi quartering from um you know the 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 former administration um at, in, in the uk uh released the mini budget and all that yeah that might have been the catalyst for it but that wasn't like the uk guilt market the long of the uk guilt market um selling off wasn't really fundamentally based like you know people doing the math saying oh my god the uk can't afford this so this is like we must sell uh, UK gilts at the long end. No, that that was like blasting through 4% on the third year UK gilt plus illiquidity. And it was much more technical driven. And then that selling begets selling and sort of, again, systematic flows and pension funds unwinding at, at fire sales pace and, and all that. That, that. that wasn't really fundamentally connected. Um, it was just very disjointed um, markets kind of like, I guess, behaving in a erratic fashion um and that is what i'm talking about more so like so it's not like japanese 
um, pension funds or something like who will reallocate out of the U.S. and back to Japan now that there's a yield in Japan or something like that, that they could avoid F FX volatility risk and all that kind of stuff. There might be that, but it'll also just be the fact that, look, put simply, year to date, if you think about the the safe haven for the rates market, the DM rates market, which is the safe haven asset for, you know, financial markets writ large, has been the JGB market, right? If you bought US, if you own US treasuries year to date, you're getting destroyed. Like you can't buy any, what are you going to buy Italian BTPs? You know, UK gilt? You can't own any of this stuff except for JGBs. JGBs have been the safe haven. They've been flat, right? So, um, and, and the reason is because there's an explicit floor. There's a central bank put. We will buy an unlimited amount of JGBs, uh, 10 year JGBs at 25 basis points, full stop, period. Okay, so if the assumption is like, okay, so that is like guaranteed. And once, if that floor is removed um, and expectations and risk models are based upon, this is something that's guaranteed and that guarantees get taken away, then cross asset mayhem you know, erupts. And so that's, that's basically what would cause that. Not so much the pension funds themselves. Yeah, no, it's a fascinating way to look at it. And as you said there with, you know, in the UK, they're basically doing QT, quantitative tightening. One of the major buyers has come out of the bond market. So it makes it a lot more, you could say illiquid, a lot more potential for these massive moves with less capital. Who's that? The Bank of England, you mean? Yeah, in the Bank of England, but you could say the US as well, where you know the Fed aren't buying bonds anymore, so there's gonna there's gonna be that you know less capital is gonna be not easy to move the market, but these events could be a catalyst for that. And they could very just as easily just as easily as they were able to step out. That's that's giving a lot of uh, <laughs> a lot of leeway too. Yeah. Just as easily as they were, they, it wasn't easy, nor did they step out. But just as easily as they were to step out, they can very easily just step back in. It's gonna just have to be. And look, they'll be right to do it too, because it's not based on fun. They're not doing it for fundamental reasons. They're not. It's not gonna be a QE in that sense to stimulate. It's a QE to stabilize. But that messaging is gonna be. Uh, I mean, if they can deliver that messaging. Uh, flawlessly, um, so that markets understand, like, okay, we understand what's going on. We understand this is a, truly a non-QE QE and all that kind of thing. Um, and, uh, that would be impressive. I got to tip my hat to Governor Bailey for um, actually being able to get in and out and do a temporary two-week reversal on, on QE and sort of uh, what I call single-serving yield curve control. Good, good for him for for them to be able to pull that off. Um, and see, let's see if they can get back on track with their original. Uh, but um, if they did that, that would be certainly impressive. But I don't think that the Fed could do that because it's over scrutinized, it's over analyzed, and therein lies opportunities too. You know, when people like uh, who are betting on like this is gonna be the end of the United States and blah blah blah, like th those sort of things. When those sort of flows are reflected in markets, like you could take the other side of that too. Yeah, it's interesting. So obviously, you're focusing on the BOJ potential what's happening there is there anything else that you're sort of keeping a close eye on you think could happen in the future um yeah so look again the reason i'm looking at the boj is, is nothing to do with my uh geographic location i'm just looking i'm keeping very close eyes on it because that has been the um that will continue to be uh the major central bank of uncertainty and consequence along with the pboc in china and all that while i'm watching yeah china Japan. I watch the U.S. obviously, but uh, the reason I 
don't pay attention, relatively speaking, is because everybody else is. And so everything is priced into markets already. What, you want me to give you, like, a, a view on the Fed? Like, the FOMC and, like, you know, inflation? I mean, good God, everybody's doing that. And you don't need my view, nor would you want that. Um, but, um, yeah, I, I would suggest strongly looking at uh, Asia, especially, you know, um, Japan and China. Um, and if you're basically like a only allocated to your whatever country you're in, but let, let's say you're just US based and you're just have like a US stock based portfolio, I think that we're about to enter a period of like fragmentation of markets. So not everything's going to be just, just risk on and risk off anymore. There's going to be within not just within indices, but within sectors. Company A will outperform company B um, by 80%, you know, in uh, the course of 12, 12 months next year. Um, there's going to be different FX pairs that are going to move differently. Like, not everything's going to be against the dollar at the same rate, as we saw with the British pound and the yen, two major currencies, which were just a month and a half ago competing for the spot of worst performing currency year to date. And they were doing so for totally sort of idiosyncratic reasons, for completely different reasons, right? Um, and so I think that the days of correlation of one are over that we've been used to for the last 10 years of central banks doing the same thing. And then obviously COVID really, you know, boosting correlation of one to everything, both going into and coming out of COVID. But now that central banks and sort of like the, the policy accommodation papering over of everything uh, is being lifted, it's exposing and being reflected in markets, all of the different idiosyncrasies within regions, among regions, within companies, balance sheets, and all that kind of thing. So now truly is a time going forward, 2023 is going to be a time for uh, asset selection. That You can see that as an opportunity. You can see that as a risk. You can see as an opportunity. As, like, you could also see that as crap, I have you know, like, single like country exposure. I need to diversify. I need to buy, I need to, you know, own Australian equities or whatever maybe. I'm looking at just, again, the cross-asset picture, broader, writ large, and how those divergencies will play out um, and reflect their fundamentals and what the kind of rhetoric is around around the world. Um, IMF and all that are still talking about, like, yes, we're in a globally synchronized monetary policy. No, you're not. Um, so we'll see how long that lasts. That and crypto as, as well, obviously. You know, there's a different kind of asset class in itself. Um, but that's that's also what I'm looking at. Yeah, and do you have any thoughts on the current sort of, I guess, FT, FTX crisis that we've been experiencing? I think you were mentioning before about how uh, some of FinTwit uh, and what you've seen there, you haven't agreed with. Oh. <laughs> I thought you were going to say my FTX Japan account, which is no more. <laughs> Um, yeah, I saw you. I think you linked something that what they were about to open an office in Tokyo. So that's obviously yeah. the, uh, <laughs> that's, that's, that's the top. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's the, an indicator. Yeah. If anyone opens an office in Tokyo, you know. That. When you brag about your when you brag about your new office, look at the balance sheet of that company. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, so um, yeah, yeah. So regarding FinTwit, what I was saying was, and by the way, the, the FTX account thing. By the way, it's because I I had. There's a there was a exchange called Liquid in Japan uh, that I used to use to short take like a uh, directional downside positions on BTC. You could use go like forex levered on that. That was bought out by FTX. I didn't I haven't used that. I didn't even know I had an FTX Japan account um, until I got an email saying that my I can't withdraw things. So I was like, oh okay. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, with going to like FinTwit, um, I so. 
this is not really anything, I guess, uh, particularly unique um, as a situation. But for me, I don't know why it got to me this time, but it's really been kind of, I've been very, I, I don't know how to put this. Um, I'll just say, for lack of better term, as well as not comprehensively, disgusted at a lot of the things that are like espoused out on Fintwit. So, namely, the blame game. There is, as far as I'm concerned, one individual or a handful of individuals um, who should be blamed for FTX, and that would be the people at FTX, namely Sam Bankman-Fried. Um, but right now, there is, like, this massive, like, kind of... A uh, wave of like you are responsible for this and you have accountability for this and this and this and this and this. Look, Larry David, for example, right, uh, who's getting sued right now apparently for his commercial. He, Larry David does not know anything about crypto. He didn't look at the balance sheet and see like FTT tokens made up the bulk of the balance sheet of the assets and like and therefore let's like this Alameda's like you know co relationship is a scam and let me get. Uh, let me add to my you know eight hundred million dollar net worth by doing this commercial. Like he doesn't know anything. Like he is not at all like uh, responsible for um, the the fraud that was happening there, right? And so everybody was sold on this. So to point fingers at, and I know it sounds like um because like real vision gets blamed or whatever too. Like everybody everybody gets blamed. Everyone's getting blamed, right? Um, I'm not defending real vision. I am calling out to specific people or like a specific kind of behavior. Um, if you are, if you have lost money as I have, um, or gotten money stolen from that, uh, from, 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 from you, that is a terrible thing. That is a shame. However, bad actors in markets and all that kind of thing happen. You could just as much as somebody could break into your house and steal a, a TV um th th things you know things will things will happen you have to be aware of those things right um in but in terms of um someone that you should play if you're just somebody who's constantly out there just like throwing names under the bus and saying like this person is responsible this person is responsible this person is um the reason for um this fraud to perpetuate and all that no everyone was duped and all that and secondly and more importantly how about if you're going to do that, fine, but also the other side of take personal responsibility for your investment choices. Nobody put a gun to anyone's head to say, buy this, unless you're a Bitcoin maximalist in which you're putting a gun to people's head and saying, buy only Bitcoin. But that aside, um, like there is such a, the ratio of people who are saying, I, uh, you are to blame this person's like uh, promoter of scams and blah, blah, blah. And I need to take personal responsibility for my own actions, uh, even if they were, um, you know, I'm victimized by fraud and all that. That ratio is so imbalanced that that's really what disgusts me. Um, I think, like, my disclaimer for trading and all that is, if people see my videos, is literally this. Um, if you listen to me, you will lose all your money. If you use me as a reverse indicator, you will lose all your money still somehow. The reason is because I'm a very stupid person and these are very stupid thoughts. So I'm going to tell you what I do. And if you decide to apply any of it, please do so if you hate money. That's as clear as I can get. And that's what I say all the time.
But the I'm not joking about when I say that. Like, it sounds funny, but the reason I say that is because, look, if I'm talking to, uh, I don't know who's going to be watching these videos. I don't know your individual risk parameters, this and that, and like, uh, you know, what, what kind of trader you are, if you're long-term, short-term, what time horizon. And even if I did, there's somebody else watching who's the exact opposite. So there's no way for any financial commentator to give financial advice fundamentally to begin with because everybody is so different. So you have to apply it to yourself. It, like what works for somebody, it's not going to work for somebody else. That's the nature of markets. So you have to, under, the only one who understands your risk, risk level or whatever is yourself. There's no way that somebody else on our side of the screen can do that for you. And if you don't even know that yourself, you need to look at, take a cold hard look in the mirror and understand that like you are the person who is like, you know, uh, making financial decisions, whether they're in frauds or, or frauds or otherwise. Um, if you're victimized by it, then so there for acknowledge that others who promoted them possibly were victimized alongside them and lied to as well, just in the same boat. And if you're not going to do that, you know, just take a good intrinsic look at yourself and say like, where can I learn from this? What can I do? You know, the trading losses are not losses. If there is a takeaway from it, then it's just tuition. If there's no takeaway, then it's only left, you're only left with the loss and therefore it is not tuition. It is a pure, you know, loss. Have a positive takeaway. Learn something from it. Stop blaming others. Don't add to this, like, uh, like attacking of each other. We are not better off by this. Nobody is going to be uh, made whole from doing any of that, and uh, nobody is uh, benefiting, or, um, or for that matter, nobody is really getting punished as as you wish uh as a result of the, those those sort of um uh efforts so that's kind of something that i want to get off my chest i don't know what what your thoughts are too because i know because you you could very well be you know if i turn out to be a bank japan insider this whole time or something like that you had me on uh anthony you you um participated in this uh, fraud of the, the yen market or whatever um and and you could be at at risk of that too right but you're obviously doing this to this this wonderful podcast to help people and to educate people right and that's your intention um and if you have like some scumbag like myself on um then you know you will be held like to you know feet to the fire and all that so like, what are your thoughts on that yeah i just think that I'm surprised people aren't more cynical and that might just be my own personal opinion. I'm quite uh, cynical when it comes to, as you mentioned there, putting money into assets or even listening to things. So I'm always that person who's, I'm like the, uh, the perma bear almost. I'm always like that negative person thinking like, okay, is this really the case? So I feel like, you know, I might not, as you mentioned there, like I, I'm cynical myself. So then I don't really think that some people are just very trusting and they just will listen to someone and say, oh yeah, I have to do that. So I feel like sometimes, you know, I'll, I'll have you on then I might have someone else on next week and they'll say the exact opposite. And I really enjoy that. And I think sometimes it's just about listening, being very cynical about what people are saying. And then you, you hear something like, oh, okay, that sounds interesting. Let me do more research. So I feel like that's where the space really needs to go to the point where, sure, someone can give their opinion, but it doesn't mean that that's what, what you have to do is actually having your own beliefs and, you know, doing your own work about it. Yeah, like exactly. Like there's, like I said, there's fundamentally no way for somebody to give trading advice. If I say short dollar yen or, you know, go, go long dollar yen from here to 146, um, into the end of the year 
and let's say dollar yen drops to I don't know, 70 <laughs> and you're totally blown up. Okay. Uh, tomorrow. Right. Um, am I to blame And you had that trade on, right? Am I to blame for that? Uh, I blame myself for my portfolios, uh, PNL, you know, gains and losses. And I don't blame markets for that. And I don't blame the, you know, shenanigans happening at Bank of Japan and the Ministry of Finance. Um, and I don't blame anybody else who I got an opinion from either about that. If I said like, hey, uh, you know, trader at this institution that I know, what do you think of this? And they said like, yeah, it makes sense to put that trade on. I'm not going to go back up to him and say like, or her and say, you said that that was a good, like you agreed that with me that that was a good idea. You need to pay me back for the principle of like whatever. Like that's. That would be ridiculous, right? So it's impossible for for us to be able to address everybody's like um, individual financial portfolios and needs and risk tolerances and objectives and all that. And so you have to just apply, take away what you will, apply what you will. But either way, it's it's in your hands. It's not on anyone else's. Um, even if you get your funds stolen away from you, literally, it's not in your hands. But um, that is something that. If you didn't do the due diligence on SBF um, and lost money, well, then that goes for Larry David as well. Um, all, all the same, right? So there just needs to be more public, um, I, well, I would say public accountability for like self accountability or public, like, you know, uh, self, you know, responsibility taking, I guess, um, which nobody will say that. So that needs to net out as less of the blaming, one side blaming of the others. Because otherwise, the Anthony's of the world are just going to stop doing this, like, sort of amazing service that people are getting huge value out of, right? So, yeah, I think uh, I might be like, and it might be from your perspective as well, because you, you backed yourself when you went to Japan. So you, I'm not sure about you, but you know, I went a different path and you know, lots of people told me no. So I don't really, no offense to the listeners because I, because I love you all, but I don't really, I'm not fussed about if I get those negative comments or anything, because I know, you know, people enjoy what, what we're doing and probably similar to yourself. You're not fussed to get those negative comments because you're, you know, you're more self-accountable to yourself. Yeah. that. So th- thank you for being the voice of reason amongst the two of us for, because <laughs> before I get to, 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 uh, I kind of ranting about this. I I do want to say, however, uh, I completely appreciate, and I'm sure you do too, um, everybody else who isn't like that, who actually does do the, I'm not saying I'm making a broad, you know, across the the board statement to everybody. There are plenty of people, there are more people actually who are supportive um, of people like you and I for doing what we're doing. Um, it's very difficult to do what we do. I mean, uh, you know, you're, you're more on the interviewing side. I'm more on the, you know, kind of look analytical, analytical markets involved side. Um, and so I'm, I get asked the questions versus vice versa and so on and so forth. That doesn't mean that you, you obviously, you still have to do your own sort of research. I look at you as kind of like a market maker of information. Um, and I'm kind of like a prop trader of, 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 you know, of information, but, um, but like it's very difficult to do the things that we do, let alone to put it out there for free to consume. Not because there's no like you know direct like immediate revenue from that or something like that. It's because 
um, we put ourselves uh, at risk of those very sort of, you know, voices out there um, knowingly. And so just shut the fuck up if you're one of those people because you're ruining it for everybody else uh, who are getting a value out of people like Anthony. Yeah, come at us. Put all your negative comments <laughs> down below. Yeah, bring, yeah and no, the, I'm also desensitized too, so bring bring them on. But like, I mean, if you do, yeah. just also you better throw in a. However, I do take personal responsibility for my own portfolio actions as well. Disclaimer, and then say whatever you want to. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Makes sense. So, uh, Weston, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Uh, I guess my last question is: What is one message you want people to take away from our conversation? Because we touched on so much stuff. <laughs> yeah. Um, if you're new to finance, um, the hurdle, the perceived hurdle might be very daunting. Um, but look, uh, look at like my background, look at me. Um, like I said, people are, if you're, if you think that I'm a, a credible voice on the bank of Japan, um, when I was Anthony's age current, I didn't know what a bond yield was. So, and that wasn't that long ago. Um, so the hurdle to get up to speed is not as daunting as you think. Uh, because it's not that there is like this all-knowing benchmark. It is that you just have to get up to the same level of nobody knows anything, right? You have to know the like kind of basic fundamentals of how things work. But after that, market views part of it, nobody knows anything. So it's actually relatively uh, not that steep of a hill. And then if you are an experienced person, don't think that you know everything and uh, you know uh, you and humble yourself and get back down to i don't know anything and that middle area is where you need to be um for for both sides i think so constantly 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 keep learning it's never like uh i've learned finance there's that that moment is never going to happen you every single day you don't know what's going to happen and that's normal and it's great and the, if you could acknowledge that then ironically you are more knowledgeable relative to and since science is a relative game you can find alpha in that so take comfort from the fact that you don't know anything you won't know anything um and neither does anyone else yeah it's a great message and it all compounds at the end of the day like you know it takes years to learn but you get to the point where as you said you don't know anything but then you uh, you, you do have these understandings of the different reactions and how, and how the market works in that regard but yeah exactly Perfect. So, Weston, thanks again. Uh, so, if anyone wanted to find more of your work, uh, and, you, know, you know, you're on Twitter. Where else would people be able to find your stuff? Um, yeah. So, I mean, so I'm, you know, uh, global market editor at Real Vision. So, just on Real Vision, um, I put out YouTube videos. I'm half of Real Vision as well. Um, but if you want the most kind of up up to date stuff, um, either like market commentary or just general commentary. Uh, of markets, just follow my Twitter. Uh, that's also where I'll probably most of the time post like new videos that I put out. And, and so just to stay on top of that. Um, so that's just at, across the spread. Yeah, perfect. I'll put that in the description below. So Weston, thanks again. Thanks so much, Anthony. It's a pleasure talking to you and uh, great job with your podcast. I wish you uh, all the best. Welcome to another round of Boardroom or Miro Board. Today we talk retrospectives with Agile Coach Maria. Let's go. First question. You spent two hours in a team retro, but the only input you've heard is Dave's. Boardroom or Miro Board? Boardroom. In Miro, Dave can't hog the space because everyone can add thoughts anonymously, online at the same time. Correct. Next.
You need the team to act on feedback fast. So you turn all those retro notes into JIRA tasks instantly. Miro all the way. And I can assign those tasks to teammates. You're nailing this. Now, you see hundreds of sticky notes from the retro. A real mess. But you organize them into five themes in just seconds. Miro, I basically get back an entire hour when I use its AI tools for clustering. And she's done it. Join over 60 million people running actually enjoyable and actionable retros in Miro. Get your first three boards free at Miro.com. That's M-I-R-O.com.